Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. In this episode of The No Normal, we have an interview that I conducted with composer Mary Alice Conrad. Currently a graduate student at the University of Alberta, Mary Alice is part of a really compelling community of emerging composers in our area. But this term, emerging, should never be mistaken for beginner. This group is an amazing collection of engaging, mature voices creating works that are both technically accomplished and musically distinct. Mary Alice Conrad's work definitely fits these adjectives. While often informed by extra musical subjects, some of them highly personal, the music is wide-ranging in terms of languages, instruments, and formal structures. These days, in addition to graduate work at the U of A, Mary Alice has a pretty busy composer's schedule of creating new works, and visiting other cities for performances and workshops. Our conversation covers four recent works in detail, plus there's lots of other interesting things to talk about besides. So, enjoy this interview with composer Mary Alice Conrad. As I'm looking through your biographies and program notes and and a few other things, one of the things that comes up is about mentoring and empowerment through music and things like that. And I'm just going to read you out a quote of your own. Music can be a participatory way of knowing that empowers youth to express their ideas and critically consider the world around them. So I'm wondering if you could maybe comment on that quote and talk about how this impacts you in your creative life. Well, mentoring, um, I have been the recipient of many mentorships, which have really taught me a lot. And to me, mentoring is so connected to music making, to me, um, the creation of music and the collaborative process. Without that, I don't think composers could really make it. It would be really hard, let's say that. It would be really hard for composers to make it in this day and age. And I think, yeah, just having that encouragement, the constant encouragement to critically consider things, look at your work, analyze and think about things, just be mindful about how you organize and create those sounds and the mentors that I've worked with I feel have really taught me about gaining a sense of what's important right now to write about what are they writing about and what's important to them and how does that impact uh, their own art creation and how does that impact me so it, it kind of goes both ways there and you know when I was younger as a youth you don't think of it as mentorship at that time <laughs> but 
being in the youth orchestra or, you know, the chamber choir that I sang in or the bands that I participated in, you know, all those experiences where I received mentorship through music were really important for me in my formative years. And the community aspect of it are, is really fascinating to me, how that can help form an identity at that young age, using music as that platform to experience and, and understand and process the world around you, especially when you're young, can be very powerful. And that's something that I'm really interested in exploring and, and developing in my work. The term mentorship is interesting. I think, you know, when I was, quote, studying with people, composition, it was very practical mostly. It was mostly about composing with some sage advice here and there, but not. it wasn't a lot of extra musical mentoring. And, and do you find that that is more available now, perhaps? Absolutely. I think that's one of the most beneficial things about it is that you get the textbook knowledge of what you're doing as a craft, but the mentorship is how does that look actually in real life? And how do you balance that with promoting yourself and online presence? And what does that look like You know, in the industry? How do you set yourself apart? What works? What doesn't? What's your experience? What things have worked what ha what hasn't maybe i can learn from you and, and not do those things or still try different things or take your experience and maybe challenge that or try it a different way so it's that collaborative feeling of um, working with a community where you're learning but also giving back at the same time and contributing and also receiving and empowering yourself to give back more and share more and build up and and all that great stuff I'm not sure this is accurate, but I, I'm counting that there may be something like a dozen individuals in very recent times, maybe even within the last couple of years, you've had interactions with in the mentorship context, either as your composition teachers or workshops, or perhaps even just, you know, again, that sort of idea of mentorship outside of the studio, as it were. So that's a lot of different perspectives. And I, there are a lot of people on that list that I know and amazing folks there. So I'm wondering how much impact has there been or have you felt sort of a an interesting coming together of all those different perspectives and does it leave you with a spot where you have to draw your own conclusions definitely because you do get all these ideas and concepts and philosophies and kind of outlooks and it and it is it's a lot of information to process but i kind of go at it as a way to gather what works for me and what resonates with me and kind of leave the rest. <laughs> so I, I do see the importance of taking things apart a little bit and, and seeing what works for me. But I also enjoy that a little bit because it challenges me. So this is what I like, this is what I do. But you know, maybe I can think about that in a different way and critically consider why this is important to someone else for this reason and how would that impact me. It's building on this urge that I have to create and to glean information and search for constantly learning, I guess, being open, accepting, and then making your own conclusions and moving forward. But honestly, all of them have resonated with me in some way. Like there's there's always something that I can learn from them. It's, it's made my perspective more rich, deeper understanding and appreciation for all types of art and creation, and not even just in the composition and music realm, all types of different art. I mean, writers, I've collaborated with a few writers and uh, it's just really fulfilling and enriching to, to really get to know somebody and um, understand their values and their artistic vision. 
That makes sense. And, and it, you know, my experience of your pieces, actually, it really resonates too, because I, I always feel like your pieces show an awful lot of openness to musical languages, formal ideas, all sorts of different elements that it'd be easy for me to say that and make it sound like it's just a mishmash, which it, it isn't in any case. None of your pieces are a mishmash, but as a collective body of work, and most of it that I've heard is just from the last year or two, it really shows a phenomenal, to me anyway, diversity of languages. I've been lucky to work with mentors who have really given me a lot of space, but I'm pretty open and um, malleable, I guess, willing to hear what people have to say. And, and so I've just been really lucky to work with fantastic mentors that have embraced that, I guess. And like you were saying, just embraced my approach and kind of helped me develop that, which ultimately I think is what mentors should do, help us find our voice and define that and develop that. One of the things that's interesting to me whenever I talk to composers, and this actually goes back not as long as I've been a composer, because when I was sort of emerging composer, everybody but me seemed to come from the same background. <laughs> and everybody started university when they were 18 and you know went through the steps very quickly. And the fact is, we were all white men. As I've gotten older and met more and more people and, and my, my contacts have become more people who are now emerging composers, um, People's backgrounds are wonderfully diverse in terms of where they come from. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you found composition or how did composition find you? I have always <clears throat> been involved with music since a young age. I think I was four when my parents noticed me plunking stuff out on the piano at home. You know, they placed me in formal lessons. My parents weren't necessarily musical. My grandfather on my mother's side was very musical. So my mom had a bit of a tradition of, of music learning on that side. But yeah, she had four children, all took piano lessons up to a certain point um, in high school, junior high, and that I was involved in large ensembles, some really fantastic groups, um, chamber choirs, jazz choir, and a youth orchestra, you know, bands. And even just fooling around with some friends with you know drum set and guitar in my basement. But after that, I did study at the Victoria Conservatory of Music, and it was for piano performance and pedagogy. So I, I was able to learn that right after high school. I had a really big interest in pursuing music therapy at that time. So I did my program in Victoria and stayed there for a little bit and, and worked and taught music and then did some psychology work at the university and was planning on heading back to Vancouver to um, do the music therapy program there. My plans kind of changed and we ended up in Edmonton, my husband and I. We decided to have uh, a family. It was really important for me to be around uh, with my kids when they were when they were younger and uh, my husband was developing his career and so we just kind of worked that way and during that time I always had a studio that I taught music but I was always involved with music. I started a little community choir in our community and different things that were available and in my schedule that came up, which was fantastic. So I always had this ongoing connection with music um, during that time. When my studio became quite large, I noticed that the students didn't really have opportunities for chamber experiences. So they would often have the band choirs and of course, the music lessons that I would be teaching them in a studio setting, I felt like they were missing out on that small chamber opportunity. So I 
decided to, because a lot of my students played multiple instruments, created a little side program with my studio students. And we did all sorts of fun stuff with uh, little ensembles and chamber groups. And, and that eventually grew into a larger community band that performed at, you know, local church dances and community events. And it was, it was really fun. That grew into a kind of a concert band. And yeah, I kept growing. I used that kind of as a laboratory where I could arrange music and compose some things and kind of craft them to suit the groups that we were working with because sometimes the levels of musicianship weren't always matched up and um, but it was still important for me that they were all included to be part of this um, experience depending they didn't matter what their musical skill was so so yeah I started composing that way in a sense that was the early on seed of where it came from and I did that for quite a few years how long ago would that have been I think it was about 12 13 about 13 years ago and then when my kids got to be more independent, a little bit old enough, I always had wanted to go back and finish a degree and continue with my education. If the timing and everything, you know, aligned up, there's a lot of moving parts to that goal. But yeah, so it, it did work out and I was able to go back and study composition. I did start out at McEwen and did my undergraduate degree there in composition. And I first started out like part-time-ish, so I was still teaching quite a bit and kind of transitioning into that. And then by the end, I was full-time taking studio instruction for a few years and really enjoyed that process. Decided to continue with some graduate work and I'm currently at the University of Alberta, um, just entering my second year of my master's program in composition. Yeah, I feel like I have quite an interesting background, but I, I think that really adds to my perspective and my voice as a composer. I mean, all that experience of writing for either arrangements or actual compositions, it's like having a workshop. Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why composers start their own ensembles and groups, right? So helpful. Yeah, it's a great advantage. It may be hard to answer this, but is there something that you ever heard in your life? By that, I mean uh, music or sound, or did something happen that you just sort of like, I think I'd like to compose. That, that seems like the thing that makes sense for me. I don't think there's a particular piece that really caught my ear to inspire me to compose. I think it was a collection of multiple over time, an interest in wanting to understand how that process works, the dynamics that are involved in organizing sound in that way. That's what was really compelling to me. I do remember like in my teenage years, maybe when I was 16 or 17, you know, I really loved the Concerto in F by George Gershwin. I don't know what it was. It was something about the mix of what I had been traditionally taught in the classical training, starting to kind of merge with jazz sounds and different, you know, it just was, I remember that being really influential for me and I actually learned the piece and it was probably that one would be probably the very first. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Everybody's got a different one, and, and it sometimes doesn't end up relating that closely to the voice you become. But during our chat today, I want to talk about a lot of your music, because there's, there's, there's so many interesting things. But actually, I want to go to something pretty recent from you, which is a piece called The Mountains Rend Themselves Apart. Yeah, that was an exciting project. And it's, it's a, such a cool piece. I was just listening to it and following the score this morning. The depiction of something historical and a place here is the Frank Slide in the Crow's Nest Pass. And I've been lucky enough to be down in that area a few times. And it's, unless you've been there, it's an, it's an almost un, undescribable place. And the scale of the 
landslide and, and what remains of it there is unbelievable until you've been there, how like half of a mountain can just sort of collapse. It makes you feel very vulnerable as a human, that's for sure. All that is to say, uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk about what inspired you to write a piece centered around the Frank Slide and Crow's Nest Pass. I actually spent a lot of time outside. Um, our family has spent a lot of time in that area, camping and just doing outside activities. It's such a hidden little treasure, that area of the Rocky Mountains. I remember driving through there because I kind of grew up around that area um, as a child and how impactful that site with all the rocks and the road, you know, going right through them and visiting the interpretive center, all of that is, it was very overwhelming to me as a child. And it left me with a lot of thoughts and questions. And And I hadn't been back for quite a few years, you know, prior to a few years ago when, when I went back with my family and my son at that time was eight or nine. And he, of course, was taken back by it too. That was the first time he had experienced it. And so, yeah, we spent some time you know, hiking around the rocks and going to the Interpretive Center and learning about some of the history there. And so that particular place in Alberta is really special to me. It uh, has a connection to me and my family and also to the history of Alberta. And it's an interesting and special place. And so, yeah, when I had uh, been given the opportunity to write for Edmonton Winds, I thought this would be the perfect ensemble to explore this idea and to kind of dig into it. My initial kind of proposal for the project, well, when I was working with Ray Bury, he's the director of the group, I asked him what my forces were at play here. What, what could I work with? And, and he said, basically, you can do anything you want. And so that was amazing. So I actually wrote seven percussion parts and scored the piano and the harp. So I added in a few extra things and it's a contrabassoon part in it and uh, some really exciting sounds that I wanted to explore. That's kind of where that came from. I'm going to go back over all those instructions on there too because some great percussion diagrams and stuff. I always love that stuff. Yeah, actually I do too. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of a nerdy part of me. I was a percussionist for a little bit and so I, I think that's probably why but I, I wrote like a percussion appendix. The percussionists were excited. The mountains ran themselves apart. Would you say that it's a programmatic piece? Or like, are you really concretely trying to depict either the place or the Frank slide itself? I did leave it quite open because I wanted that kind of imagination to take play to the listener and to the audience and also to the performers. But yeah, I did, some of it was more literal, for example, in my research, the number nine kept coming up a lot. I think there was approximately 90 people that were covered by the rocks and lost their lives. There was the slide that supposedly lasted for around 90 seconds. Yeah, there was a couple other things that nine kept coming back. So I, I did use nine in context of one of the sections of, of the piece has nine, eight and different kind of groupings of nine, eight that kind of comes and goes. And also the cluster that I focused the whole piece on, it was uh, based on nine notes, a collection of nine notes. And actually when I introduced the piece to Edmonton Winds, I stood up and said that this piece is in the key of cluster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of interesting. It's based on around nine notes. So it, uh, the, the melodic content is all based and comes from those, those nine notes and a variation of that. And basically I just wanted it to be an opportunity for us to think about the event, like the listener to think about the event, take them back to that moment, perhaps maybe, you know, what it might have felt like or 
sounded like or just to think about it. are somewhat inspired in this piece by a, a poem by um, E. Pauline Johnson, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connection to that poem. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, she's a Canadian poet. I came across her poem excitedly when I was doing research for this project, and the title is called At Crow's Nest Pass. She did travel around Canada a lot uh, during her life and did write a lot about the landscapes. She lived, you know, late 19th century I think she passed away in you know the early 20th century. So it was kind of around the same time the slide happened in 1903. The poem that she had written, it was before that. Then it just really beautifully captured this image of tall grand mountains and the rocks and how jagged they are and the clouds that are you know moving between them, the animals, the birds. Um, and yeah, I think the second line is, she talks about how the mountains rend themselves apart. And of course the slide hadn't happened yet. And I just thought that was perfect. It was, it was beautiful. So I, I use that as my inspiration for the title. And uh, the ensemble is taking it on a tour. Is that correct? Yes, they are taking the piece on tour to the World Association of Symphonic Bands and Ensembles in Prague in Czech Republic this July. So I'm excited that they're taking that piece about Alberta all the way over there. They've been so generous with their time. This this piece was actually written uh, through a scholarship program they have, uh, the David Erdman Memorial Scholarship. And each year they rotate between composer and performer and conductor. So students have the opportunity to work with the group and they're fantastic. They're really supportive and encouraging and yeah, just very generous. As I say, I've been hearing your works on and off for, for a couple of years. I can't remember the first one, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I mean, you've been, your name has come around and, and we've met a few times. But listening to a lot of it recently, one of the things that's most compelling about it is it appears that you have this sort of magical palette of things available to you at any given time. But what I mean by that, in case it's not quite clear, stylistic changes within pieces and between pieces are really quite common in your music. You have all sorts of great interest in timbral combinations and so on and so forth. So I wonder, does that stuff already exist in your palette of kind of tools? Is there a toolkit that you already have that has all that? Or do you do a lot of work ahead of time, listening to a bunch of pieces, maybe looking at scores, keeping a catalog of like, I think I would try this and try that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you use the word catalog because that's how I've kind of defined it in my uh, in my own mind. 
constantly hearing and learning and taking in all this stuff. But it's also the history of my life, like archival sounds that have planted themselves there over you know, the period of my life. So it is really fascinating for me to kind of think about it in that way and pull out those sounds to work with from the catalog that is archived in my brain. But I also keep a running list of ideas. I usually don't have time to develop them <laughs> too far other than, hey, this is this is really interesting. I want to explore that in more depth. And then as I get opportunities that come up, sometimes they fit with some of the ideas that I have already formed. Sometimes they don't, or sometimes they morph into something completely different or go on a different angle from what I had originally thought. But definitely I feel like it's a combination of both. Like I'm constantly listening to things and adding to that catalog. Now, when you say catalog, is it literally something that's a book that you write all the stuff in, or do you just feel like it's buried inside your person somewhere? No, I have to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, otherwise, I feel like I have too many ideas. If I don't write them down, then they'll be, they'll be lost in the next idea. So I have to write them down. It's usually a book or a piece of paper, but it's on a pile on my desk. Are you a notebook person? Do you have notebooks? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always fun. And we could go on and on geekily about that, I'm sure, and talk about what kind of notebooks and what kind of pens. And everybody knows very fussy about that, and, and rightfully so. Uh, let's talk about another one of your pieces. And the one I want to talk about is The Peculiar Dances of Shifting Minds, which uh, is a really cool chamber music piece that was performed by the Allegra Chamber Ensemble, conducted by Janice Saylor in Vancouver. This also has some extra musical connections, and the underlying one here, and this is more or less in your words, is the way that relationships change when Alzheimer's and or dementia becomes a factor in relationships. It's not something I've ever encountered being dealt with in a classical composition. So I'm just kind of wondering if you could talk about what your sort of ideas were for how this could work. How does this idea of relationships translate concretely or even in an abstract way into the piece that you've written? Yeah, for sure. So this piece um, is kind of special to me because it, it really did explore some of the things I was processing. You know, my parents are aging. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. A lot of other family members are suffering from forms of dementia or, or Alzheimer's. I wanted to just explore that and see where that took me. Musically, the ideas of the piece is that there's, there's three dances in the piece, you know, the peculiar dances of shifting minds. So it was based around the idea of movement, so body bodily movement, sometimes coordinated, sometimes not. But like I said um, previously, it was more specifically about the change in relationships that occur. I mean, I think I had written in the notes that, you know, long-standing relationships that you had developed over your whole life that were all of a sudden kind of changing. It was kind of accepting that, kind of working through that, and then figuring out a way to move forward with that. Musically, with the three dances, um, there's moments that you know are rhythmically awkward. Um, there's rocking back and forth motions. There's like more diegetic sounds that are like ears ringing type sound. Practical items that were incorporated into the composition as musical tools that resembled um, some of my family members, like for example, canning ring uh, lids um, created into yeah into a wind chime. 
which was a really exciting kind of project using knitting needles and ukuleles. So those type of, I guess, materials were important in the process as well and figuring out a way to use those musically. Three movements. I mean, the first movement is more more of an awkward dance type. It doesn't actually ever settle in. Um, the, the bass is, is um, constantly off on the weaker parts of the beat, so it never, it never really feels like it settles. And the second one is more focused on the moments that you do have of connection um, where you know the, the good days basically right where your loved one is remembering things and conversation and everything seems to be going great so yeah those moments of connection brightness there is kind of a groove to that particular piece um, and kind of a hopeful hopefulness the last one is is again more it doesn't really have a, a dance so much uh, feel to it but it is more of an expression um, like a, a gestural expression throughout the whole piece and um, of letting go and and not so much letting go like in a you know a concrete sense but letting go of kind of what you had known what your relationship was and then just kind of moving forward right with embracing what what's there and moving forward with finding new ways to connect yeah and so there's you know some sections where i have the performers um you know choose from a few different melodic options and they get the opportunity to express themselves on their own timings um like aleatoric sections where they can choose when to enter when to come out and how to express that and i really wanted that element to just to be more personal i guess more personalized and an opportunity for them to experience that and explore that and express that and they were great Allegra Chamber Ensemble in Vancouver is fantastic. Janice Saylor, who um, actually lives in Alberta, but is a, an amazing proponent of new music generally, and especially music by women. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you became part of the Allegra Ensemble's world. So last, uh, in, t- in 2021, they had a call for a program that they developed, like an emerging composer um, opportunity, and they called for all female identifying composers who wanted to participate in this program to apply. And so I did apply 
and uh, received a, an opportunity to work with them. Basically, it was a program over five, six months where we met and had professional development workshops, but also got to meet with some of the instrumentalists, so the percussionist and the harp player and some of the other musicians we were able to to really collaborate with. And also we were mentored, so I had the opportunity to work with uh, Jocelyn Morlock on that project, and that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, we were preparing for a performance. Um, initially, I think the program was to be for the full orchestra, and then it was uh, reduced down to a string quintet with percussion and harp. So it ended up being a more intimate group because of uh, COVID restrictions at that time and unknowns, and they wanted to move forward with the project. So that was the, the compromise in that. And it turned out fantastic. They prepared these six pieces by the composers and had a recording and a video session that was fantastic in Vancouver. Um, I had the opportunity to, to fly out and be there for the recordings and visit and meet everyone. And then they were released for an online festival in June 2021. I'm really happy with, with the product and just the whole experience and, and the connecting with that community is, was fantastic. Not every composer likes workshop situations. I suspect you enjoy them and I, and I think you benefit a lot from them, from what you're telling me. But was this workshop in, because it's COVID times, was it in person or were you doing these sort of online? The majority of the workshops were online. I chose to fly out to one workshop and then the recording as well. That was well worth it. Zoom has its limitations for sure. I did listen to one rehearsal. It was initially over Zoom and then there was internet connections and then I had to connect through a phone to hear it and it was just terrible. I thought, no, this this is not working for me. And the whole process, like I, I just love it. I learned so much. Like I've only been composing for coming up to four years, officially composing. And so I just I just learned so much and understanding instruments, of course, make more sense when you're talking to somebody and they're showing you things and you can get a really hands-on experience, which is so valuable. Again, I'm just so open and I'm like a sponge. Just <laughs> just show me and yeah, I just learned so much. So I absolutely love it. Let's talk a little bit about your, your work habits. There's a lot of music being produced by you in the last little while. I didn't count up the pieces, but there's, there's a fair amount happening seemingly all at once. Do you actually work on more than one piece at the same time? How do you manage that? With my lifestyle, like with a with a busy family and student and trying to set up my professional life. Out of necessity, I, I do. I have figured out how to be very productive in a short amount of time. So yeah, I absolutely do work on more than one project at a time. There's often overlap. It's not often creative overlap, if that makes sense. So like the actual creation composition part of it, it's a little bit tricky for me to overlap that. But different elements of, for example, right now I'm working on an electronics for a piece I've already written. So I'm finishing up the electronics for a piece for the Vancouver Art Song Lab. And I'm also composing a choral work for the University of Alberta Madrigal Singers. I also was making parts, uh, adapting some parts for a different large ensemble piece. So it's like different categories of the work. It's not all creative, but yeah, absolutely. I have to work on multiple projects at the same time. And I enjoy that actually. It's kind of a nice break because to do creative work for a whole day would be really hard. And then there's also like the administrative stuff, updating your website or applying for scholarships or opportunities. Or when I'm in school, I'm studying for my classwork and different elements of 
teaching if I'm a TA or something. Like there's different elements that are kind of sprinkled in there. So every day there's a creative block and where that fits in, it depends on, it depends on the day, what the deadline is for the, <laughs> for certain projects, unfortunately. No, it, it's true. Yeah. The deadlines are compelling <laughs> when they are zooming at you very quickly. Would you say at this stage that there's a typical Mary Alice Conrad process to composing? I'm still developing my process because I feel like I'm still quite new to it. So I'm working things out and, but I do kind of have a process that I've used over the last years that has worked really well, where I start out by researching and kind of gathering like a squirrel. You just kind of gather your materials and your thoughts and your ideas. That's why I enjoy the notebook because I usually have one notebook per project, depending on the scale of the project. And then I just take that notebook around with me. And sometimes that, that phase can take quite a while, but I usually start that quite early on. So it's just this notebook that kind of trickles in with information and gathering and research. And, and then once I feel like I've got to a point where, you know, I have enough that I can kind of craft a concept, then I go to there, I craft a concept and it's, it feels right. feels like that's what I want to do. Then I would go and, and plan make craft some type of plan for the composition itself and super loose because at that point I'm getting close to like physically feeling like I'm gonna burst like I need to write something I don't know if that's experienced by other people but it's exciting like you just have this energy that's like ah I gotta I gotta write something something that's just gonna it's gonna burst I gotta write so I have that and then when I feel that I know that I'm ready to start writing some music out and then that process evolves I never try and kind of concrete that too much because I like I like to keep room for the creative process, I guess, to kind of really grow. And that's probably what is developing most right now. Like I said before, I'm, I'm still kind of new to it. So that's really still in construction, I guess would be a good term, <laughs> in development of my process. Do you go straight to like computerized notation or do you write scores out by hand first? Usually write out depending on the project, like if electronics are involved, that's a little different. Sometimes I do use my DAW system if I'm working with different sounds that I can create. If I'm working like on a choral project that it's exploring some sounds and I'll, I'll go in and record myself doing some interesting things or just to get a sense of an idea. It starts out writing and then it just kind of goes wherever, wherever it needs to go. Let's talk a little bit about a piece you wrote for the McEwen Big Band. If you're primarily a classical composer, writing for big band is at least a step off to the side to something a little different. But I also know you have a background in, in jazz and, and teaching it and performing it and so on. I wonder, uh, since you've been doing so much work writing really intense chamber music, I'm wondering if um, you found it at all challenging to go back to thinking about big band and uh, the sorts of things that are implied by that, you know, the jazz styles, uh, improvisation, that sort of thing, chord progressions, as opposed to the, you know, the absolute precise exact control you have over your classical scores. Yeah, I don't find it challenging. I actually find it exciting because I do have a background in that genre and I've been trained in that genre. So I, I understand it and I, I feel comfortable with it, I guess. But it's exciting because there there's more crossover and opportunity to explore than one would think. That's what's exciting to me. I think this particular piece that I had written 
for McEwen. They were working on an album project called Generations, and they had invited 10 composers to contribute to the piece, and they uh, put together a big band to record that. Actually, just recently, a few weeks ago, we were in the studio recording that, and it was really exciting to hear the variety and, and the difference. And I really was thinking a lot about actually what you were kind of asking me is the potential. Yeah, there's so many exciting things, but it is kind of frustrating in a way because that genre is very traditional and structured in terms of, like you said, chord structures and um, traditional forms. I feel like that's okay. Like it's okay, but it's also okay to explore and push some of those things. For example, my piece is less vertical, you know, structural chord chunk type idea it it does have you know different moving horizontal like linear moments where different instruments are doing different things where normally a whole instrument choir would kind of stick together and do something all the same there's crossing over movement in in my piece and it is different but it's okay like it still it still works and it's um exploring some new sounds i think that functionally sometimes i feel a little bit held i guess restrained just for the functional structure of the chords itself. And in particular, there's one part of my piece that there's overlapping sounds that build and build and build to this climax. And it doesn't really go to a chord, for example, but it was in really interesting in our rehearsals. Um, you know, we got to that point and, and one of the players is like, well, what's the chord there? What are we doing there? <laughs> and I just wanted to say, there is no chord. It's just a cluster of sounds all together. But we did, we figured out what the chord was so that, you know, certain people had something to play during that or you know you could just use your arm and put it over the keys and <laughs> that would be the the sound type thing but but so that in that sense that's it's the tradition of this should be a chord a functional chord in relationship to everything else that's going on that was exciting to me there is uh you know a little bit of tense air in the room but that was exciting because why I, I don't know like why does it have to be a chord it doesn't have to be a chord let's just enjoy it for the sound that it is I actually really enjoy that because it pulls together in my catalog again of interesting sounds that I'm used to that I've worked with and then learning new ways of approaching that and exploring and challenging and yeah, I like it. It's a very cool piece, I have to say. I can't quite put my finger on what it is about it that attracts me so much. But maybe maybe I can turn my question around slightly too, which is that you have been doing all this brilliantly notated music for classical musicians that everything's either determined or the indeterminate things are really carefully controlled in some way or other. How has that experience over the last couple of years impacted the way that you kind of looked at writing for big band? Or did you just simply hop back onto the other platform and just go with what you already knew from earlier times? Yeah, that's a great question too, because I feel like the players were really patient with me because I had stuff written out that normally there would just be a chord and they would do their own thing. But I was really specific about certain elements of the piece that I did want to have 
written out and they were really great they never complained or anything about that so i think yeah it's finding a group that kind of is open to exploring those elements more notated and less notated i mean during the solo section that wasn't notated at all that was um let her loose on that section so it was i don't know it's a kind of a interesting balance i'm still learning and understanding of letting it go and not letting it go and being really specific about certain things but not and then within that particular genre and the traditions of that style i mean there's a lot to consider so i think it's okay if you can kind of push it a little bit here and there in certain directions and usually i find it accepted and, and okay and and then also too like i'm open to feedback too so if performers want to share stuff with me or you know this would be easier if you just did this or we get the same you know feel we would get the same results but if we tried this then i love that cause it's like oh okay then i'll remember that for next time is the is the McEwen big band primarily a student group or is it faculty as well so this particular project was a combination so they did have some students uh some more advanced students and then faculty and then professional players from the community so it was kind of like a, a group that they had pulled together just for this project that were connected to McEwen. They have a recording program there. And is there an expected release date? I think it's this fall sometime. I don't know the exact date. I know it'll be streamed like on all the streaming platforms. I'm not sure if they'll end up doing an LP or hard copy CD. And I know they've done previous projects with LPs, so it might, it might end up that way. I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's just talk a bit, a bit more about your day-to-day work. Are you talking to me from the place where you do most of your composing? I am. I'm talking to you from my desk, exactly. You know, everybody has their sort of toolkit of things, I think, that they work with. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happens when you're composing. What's this typical sort of like session like? Oh, that's a great question. Well, while I'm composing, let's see, I sit right next to a little keyboard. So I often use that that's connected to my DAW if I need to use that, but it's also not connected, so I can just use it as reference. I do sit at the piano quite a bit, the acoustic piano, and do a lot of improvising and kind of exploring through sounds that way. I'll also do a lot of listening. That helps a lot. Often, I'm lucky to get a solid two hours of uninterrupted time, so I've just learned to work with small chunks of time. If I'm needing to get up and take care of something or family something or stuff comes up but I also take the composition with me wherever I go so I do spend a lot of time driving so I live a little bit outside the city my children are quite active in activities Um, so I'll often take a manuscript paper or sometimes my phone with me or sometimes I'll take a little keyboard that I have with me and put it in my backpack and uh, continue the process where I am never leaves I guess it's just that's this thing that's always there like composing which is kind of cool literally on my desk like I look around and it got some interesting things like a cowbell and some pictures I have to order for one of my kids and Oscar the Grouch little button that says don't bug me it doesn't work for my kids (laughs) are you fussy about it being tidy before you work like I actually have to tidy it get everything out of the way and then there's other people that it's chaos of course and and they thrive on the chaos well I think with my family I'm used to not having my own space, but definitely if I have cleared space where I can put the project I'm working on in front of me, then I'm good. I can go. Do you have any favorite pencils? I just like the thicker lead. So like 
6.7, I think it is. That's my favorite. A nice ruler, sharp mechanical pencil, and a separate eraser. That's important. It's interesting how when you start digging in with composers, it actually matters a lot to them, all this stuff. Well, the weight, the pencil is a big deal for me too. So it can't be too heavy or too thick or too narrow. So it has to be the right physical proportion to my hand to, to make sense. And I usually, if I find something I like, I don't go crazy and get super expensive ones, but you know, medium to nicer pencils I'll get. And I usually will get a bunch of them because they sometimes just disappear if I don't put them away. <laughs> um, and I'll find them in my kids' backpacks or lunch sacks or something. <laughs> so I can't be too precious about it, but I definitely have specific preferences, yeah. A piece that I'm, I'm really, really quite taken with of yours, which is the 26 Pontographic Preludes saxophone quartet even within the sort of really really interesting array of pieces you've been working on recently this one kind of caught me off guard in a way i think even within your output of recent times this is a very unusual structure and concept so first of all it is uh, and i'm going to say it again for the folks at home punctographic preludes i had to look up the word punctographic so i'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind explaining punctographic it basically just means the raised print with braille. So, you know, when you touch the, the papers or the raised prints, the dots um, within the cells of the braille themselves, it's just raised printing. So that's what it means. And so the piece is uh, structured basically as an alphabet. The score actually has braille. Maybe I'd just ask you to talk a little bit about how the theme of this piece relates to the music that you composed and that fact that 26 structure. I wanted to explore a number of things. Particularly, I wanted to explore my grandfather's experience that he had um, losing his sight. He was also a saxophone player. He played in the 1930s and 40s in Alberta in dance bands and you know that was quite the thing during that time. He played the saxophone and also multiple other instruments but the saxophone was kind of his main instrument and I actually never met him. He passed away a while before I was even born. Um, so I've always, because of his musical heritage and you know stories that I've learned about him, I've always been really fascinated with him. And he, later on in his life, he did develop a brain tumor that caused blindness. And his experience of that was what I was really interested in, in a musical sense. Like, how did that affect his music personality? And I, I did a lot of family history research as well for this project. As well, I discovered um, all sorts of really interesting things that led to, of course, Louis Braille. Also led me to another remarkable person, uh, Dr. John Hall, who uh, was a professor in the UK who went blind in his early 40s. And it's very captivating to me. And so I wanted to explore all these things and bring them together in a musical world. Um, so the piece ended up being I'm um, just under 30 minutes with just music and I did create 26 kind of little movements and each of them was based off one of the braille cells for each of the letters. However, each of them weren't titled like the letter, although they did use the letter, they, um, the letter kind of the, informed the title. Each of the braille uh, cells has a series of six dots and they're all kind of rotated in a different order. There is a pattern to them all. So after 10 letters, the pattern repeats and builds on the previous one. So there is some similarities. For example, that's kind of how I, I structured 
the whole piece was through the patterns of the braille cells. Basically, I divided them into three groups, well, actually 10 groups, but they were all connected in smaller groups of three. For example, group one was letter A, K, and U, and all of those symbols on the braille cells are connected. There's similarities uh, with, a, with either one added dot or one dot that's in a different place. They're, they're similar. There's tiny differences, which is brilliant. When Louis Braille was formatting this, he had kind of built off of a system that already existed, but he took that system and simplified it and kind of reduced it down. And he was only 15 when he came up with this amazing structure. Yeah. There was all these interesting connections, like Adolf Sachs, who actually invented the saxophone, was also a young inventor. He was 15 when he was creating his first instrument. His parents were also instrument uh, builders. Actually, Louis Braille was his father um, also had a tool shop and was into creating things and that's actually how he damaged one of his eyes and anyway so all of these little interesting things were kind of connecting to each other but each of the pieces the 26 pieces um, is based off the structure of the Braille cell also informed musically by the art of that Braille cell so the relationship of the dots within the cell so usually it would be intervallic relationship. Sometimes it was rhythmic, um, depending on where the dots were placed. For example, A, there was just one dot, right, in the far upper left corner. And so I used the element of long sustain, so one idea. And it happened to be repeated four times. Yeah, it was exciting to use the image of the cell to inform the music. And it was exciting to explore this and my grandfather, the transformative process of losing sight that you've had your whole life and then having that taken away from you. is also accompanied by a quotation. Do you see those as being a function of something to inform the performance? Or is it something that the audience needs to be aware of? So like if there's a public performance, would they be in the program? Or is this just something you want performers to think about while they're performing? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question too, because I haven't decided yet. <laughs> I think it is primarily for the performers, how the audience or the listener understands that I'm not sure what the best way I've had it performed where the quotation has been read before the performance of that particular movement which I found was effective there's a few ways that I've thought about kind of approaching that but it's primarily for the performers and and the information the capture of quotation is taken from Hull's book um, touching the rock that was really powerful for me to read that book and so each of those letters uh, is accompanied by a title, and then that's tied into the excerpt that sheds some type of information or perspective about the process of becoming blind. So for example, letter T is titled territory, and then the quotation with it, blindness takes away one's territorial rights, one loses territory. That in itself is very 
interesting and um, sheds a lot of light about the process of becoming blind. It, it, you would never think of that, right? That losing your sight would cause you to, to feel a sense of, of, of lack of territory around you and that oh, everything that you can only touch now with your hand or you know parts of your body as you brush by them or a stick, something in front of you, is, is what is in your environment and that's it. And there was another beautiful comment about rain. So rain was letter R and the quotation for that was, rain had a way of bringing out the contours of everything. It throws a colored blanket over previously invisible things. It gives a sense of perspective and of the actual relationships of one part of the world to another. So that idea of sound and the rain falling on things in the environment, it'd be like painting a picture of sound. That was really fascinating to me. Those are really, really astonishing quotations, actually. And the Edmund Quartet is kind of like an all-star group, although there could probably be two or three all-star quartets in Edmonton. So uh, how closely did you work with those folks? Was this a workshop situation or something that you just composed and went in with? So this project was actually a project that I used for my master's program. So I did work with them. They had rehearsals, open rehearsals where we could come. I had access to some questions beforehand. You know, the main player also works at the university. So there was great collaborative opportunities there to interact and uh, attend workshops and rehearsals. I love that because it just teaches me so much. I learned an incredible amount just listening to them. And also, you know, not them formally saying things. I learned probably more just watching them and understanding, okay, that's really hard to do. Why did I do that? Or I didn't realize that was really challenging or what's really effective or what's coming out the way that I had hoped or what do I need to adjust? Again, as with some of your other scores, there's all sorts of really interesting things to read just in the preamble to the score with performance notes. Did you do a lot of time sort of like trying these things out with them first or were you just experimenting on your own, maybe with a saxophone? My son actually plays a saxophone. So I borrowed his uh, instrument and tried a few things with them and asked him to do a few things too. And also they had they had a workshop, the quartet had a workshop that was... Um, kind of fit into our composition forum and we were able to ask questions and kind of understand some of the techniques that were involved so that was helpful too. You are among what is starting to feel like a little not sure a school of Edmonton emerging composers is the right word but there's a real blossoming of compositional activity happening at Edmonton. There's all sorts of really really interesting voices uh, amongst the emerging composers around here which is fantastic and uh, really, really a joy to sort of get to be part of hearing these pieces. I'm wondering um, if you're feeling like there's a kind of a trend amongst emerging composers in terms of what kinds of things you're interested in, or is it just a group of people who just all do things differently, but somehow again come back to this central idea that they compose music? I don't think so. I think it's just really exciting to see all the creative voices that are beginning to take root and kind of emerge from this area and the diversity in those voices I, I think that's what's really special and extraordinary that's what makes it exciting to me the conversations that we can have with each other I mean it doesn't make sense to just write music with blinders on you need to be listening and engaged to what's happening around you and I think that's what the role of, of mentorships um, provide as well too in that in that regards where you can kind of connect with that but 
being involved with with that emerging community is is also really important to me too and that we're supporting each other like one of my colleagues said that yeah it's interesting because we um you know we're in a sense competing with each other but it's not like that it's a supportive enriching experience that we can really really root for each other and for our own ideas and respond to each other and discuss things in a, in a musical sense and in, in musical ways and have a conversation. I think that's really exciting. Well, we haven't been doing things chronologically, but we're kind of at a place now where we can talk about the next thing, which is called Looking North Outside the Chamber, Empowering Youth Through Music. And this also takes us right back to the start of our conversation where we were talking about empowerment. The work ties in closely with that quote. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit maybe about how you would outline your intentions for this piece, because it doesn't exist yet. So I'm really, really excited about this project, but also because my journey through music composition, I came to composition through my community, community work with studio and uh, involving youth, being a parent, I, I feel like I, I just have that around me all the time, right? So this particular project that I just received funding to um, go forward with was designed around uh, creating a platform for developing musicians, so between the ages of approximately 14 to 19, where they can experience uh, the world around them and process and critically think about things through a musical platform. So that platform is what I'm proposing to be a small ensemble or chamber experience, but I don't like the word chamber because it um, comes with lots of traditional implications and history. So yeah, I like to refer to it as small ensemble as opposed to you know your large bands and orchestras and choirs, which they can receive in other community or school areas. But it's it's often that those chamber opportunities are neglected at that age, and I get why because it's it takes a more kind of more mature outlook to pull it together and to listen to each other. But those skills that that you learn and develop in those uh, small ensemble opportunities are so valuable and so transferable to real life. I think, why do we not have more youth ensembles that are small like that? And why are we not exploring contemporary music within that? Why are we not exploring different ideas? Why can't we use that platform as a way to explore the world around us during those informative years, topics of music that are really engaging to them and bring certain points to the forefront that, that they can think about and, and consider and then also express themselves within that framework of a mu musical performance. So this idea has been really, really passionate about it, but also I've designed a, a research creation project where I'll compose a collection of five works for developing musicians between the ages of 14 and 19 that is inspired or centered around the landscapes of Canada's Arctic particularly. And we'll be exploring themes of landscapes, some of the animals, climate change, different items that um, are important to Canada and just specifically what's in Canada that we don't often get to see. So my concept is to go and travel up there and do some research and collecting some ideas and um, then come home and, and write, compose these um, collection of five works that will be kind of a platform to explore areas of Canada. So I want to include elements of open instrumentation. So I really want it to be inclusive. So that's something even before I started composing music, especially youth, they just need to be involved and included. You shouldn't be excluded from opportunities, especially in the arts. I feel like that's really important. 
so open instrumentation is one way for me as a composer to include that element. I've never written open instrumentation before, so this will be a challenge for me, and I'll have to do a lot of learning and research for that. But I'm confident I can I can make it work. And also including in that aspect different instruments, so not just Western instruments, um, you know, a collection of variation of instruments, and it doesn't have to be an instrument, it can be voice, it can be, um, you know, electric instrument, like electric guitar, or electric bass, or different types of percussion, or even found objects. So there's going to be options to include somebody who does have training and somebody that doesn't have training, there'll be inclusive options and abilities there. And yeah, I'll be exploring some improvisation um, within the collection, and each piece will kind of focus on one element explore different compositional ideas. Again, it'll be for the developing musician, so there's a lot of uh, important things there to consider. There's a lot of different ways that notation could be part of this. You know, really precise Western-style notation can be a barrier for a lot of people when they're young. Even if they are learning how to play it, sometimes it's really hard to interpret it properly. Are you making allowance for that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be incorporating elements of graphic notation, but also text notation as well. So I've been learning a lot about text scores recently, and uh, yeah, it's a very powerful way. So graphics and through text, yeah, it'll be kind of a collection of different approaches. Is there any possibility of this being, um, I mean, a North is a very large term. Is there some possibility that these might make their way up there, this project, in terms of performing it? You know, is there a way that it could end up? that you do a tour, for example, of Northern communities. Yeah, I love that idea. I think that's great down the road. Yeah, that would be really powerful. I think that would be fantastic. Part of the project includes a website um, that kind of accompanies the, um, the written um, the collection of scores. And that particularly will include uh, photographs and some videography work. I'm taking a, a camera and some audio files as well. There'll be recording of um, different elements, landscape um, elements as well, to accompany the work so that um, people that are learning the pieces have that as a reference and include that in their project as they're preparing. Do you have sort of a timeline for this? You're very shortly going to be going on the trip. Middle of August, I'll be gone for about uh, 20 days. And then through September to December, I'll be writing the pieces. I'll be collaborating with the University of Alberta uh, there's Zeme Ensemble. Um, I'll be workshopping as I'm writing the piece. I'll be workshopping a few ideas with a different, uh, few different groups, but I'll be working with some of the groups at the University of Alberta, just working through some things and sorting them out. And I'll be, of course, working with the, the faculty there on the project as well as part of my master's program. Let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe some things beyond that. I'm wondering if you have some uh, projects that take place after that or Actually, maybe even more so, are, are you got you got some dream projects in mind that you maybe even think that are completely impractical and there's no possible way in the world that you could ever do them, but you would love to. Yeah, well, I have my heart set on an opera at some point in time. Not a traditional sense opera, but um, yeah, a particular opera that would kind of appeal to a more younger audience geared toward youth. I haven't really you know, spent too much time developing that idea. But I would would love to explore that more. I actually really enjoy large ensemble writing. Uh, that's kind of my problem. I actually enjoy all <laughs> all types of writing. <laughs> so I yeah I really I really enjoy 
large ensemble, chamber, solo, all sorts of combinations of that in between. I definitely have a few projects that are lined up for following Postmasters, but nothing that I can announce quite yet. But um, I'm excited. And like I said, I, I have a growing list of exciting compositional ideas that are just waiting to be printed. I also have, you know, a couple projects that I've started that are just sections of things that I eventually want to go back and add to. For example, there's an art song piece that I had written to a, a poem, John White, he's from Alberta. Um, he had written a poem about coyotes, actually. And so that's one of my projects that I want to go back and create a song cycle around that. And then I also just finished an art song piece for the Vancouver Art Song Lab. And I'm collaborating with Mathur Anand. She's a poet from Ontario. And I would love to, she, we, we worked on a, on a set of three poems that she had, but we only did one for this particular project called Portraits of Birdsong. And uh, I hope that we can go back and finish the last two because they're fantastic. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of things. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mary Alice Conrad. That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SoCan Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together. And of course, thank you for joining us. Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Sitbutt. <laughs>